In this episode, I get to talk to Leila Bilal. She is currently working as a manager of product at McGraw-Hill International. She's also a co-founder and consultant at Transform Ed Collaborative. She has seven years of ESL and foreign language teaching experience in the K-12 and higher ed setting, including The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, where she resides. She holds a bachelor's in linguistics, a master's in applied linguistics, and TESOL, and a PhD in leadership and change. Her research focus is on global virtual teams and the experience of teaming at a distance. She regularly presents at international conferences on education leadership, global virtual teaming, and team science. Her publications include topics such as professional learning communities, adaptive leadership, and team science. She is the past president of the Ohio TESOL, Teachers of English to Speakers of Other Languages, and her hobbies include walks and hikes with Skywalker, her pup, listening to podcasts, and traveling with friends and family. I can't wait for you to hear from Layla Bilal. I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Layla, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself for our audience in whatever way feels relevant to you? Yeah. Hi, Lindsay. It's so nice to be here with you today. So I'm Layla Bilal, and I tend to wear many professional hats. I was a teacher and a professor in a past life. I've worked as an instructional coach and designer. Um, I've served on educational boards as a board member. Um, I worked as a product manager, a language specialist, um, but I'd say more importantly, um, a learner. I am a learner for life. I love that so much. This, this orientation toward learning is so important for literally everything that we do. And especially in the field of education, just being able to model that we are never done with our learning journey. I love that you have succinctly shared that that's who you are. Absolutely. So the next question I typically ask is this idea of freedom dreaming. So Dr. Bettina Love talks about this. She says it's dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. So when you think about the big dream that you hold for the field of education in line with this idea of freedom dreaming, what comes up for you? Lindsay, before I answer that question, let me just insert a caveat that I have three dogs lurking and they are barkers. So if you hear barking in the background, that is what it is. So to return to freedom dreaming, I think for me, it's just, it's wanting more or better from the systems, you know, the way we think about systems that contain our economy, our laws and policy and our education. Um, I think that is an act of justice. I think not remaining complacent in systems that may privilege us personally is a form of justice or action toward justice. I think complacency is how inequitable practices have continued to thrive through our, our society. And that narrative has really been exacerbated by social media and competing 24-hour news cycles. 
And in education specifically, my personal commitment has just generally speaking been to those who we identify as non-native English speakers. Um, so the multicultural population of immigrants and refugees that we see in our schools. And um, because I am one, um, I came as a refugee to the United States in 1994. Um, and the dream you know, enveloped in that is gathering the necessary momentum and not falling victim to apathy, which is really um, incredibly easy to do. I think especially the farther removed you become, the more positional power that you gain, um, you know, through upward mobility, whether, you know, socioeconomic class or through advanced education, um, et cetera. I left the classroom in 2016 and I, you know, I felt exhausted, just mentally, emotionally exhausted. I was exhausted by, you know, certain expectations um, and high stakes testing and what I deemed inauthentic student-centered teaching and learning approaches and really lacking appreciation and recognition of students with certain identified needs, which by the way, you know, are protected by law. Yeah. There's so much in there that you covered in such a short period of time. So this idea of complacency, this idea of stress and just overwhelm that is so prevalent with, with teacher burnout, this idea of who we're centering and, and who we're thinking about when we're making pedagogical decisions and curricular decisions of who gets to be at the center of that and integrating your own personal experience into that. I really appreciate your, your genuine like conversation here and, and what you're sharing with us. You have written a ton about adaptive leadership. And so I think the next thing I want to think about is um, in alignment with that, I'm always curious to know about the mindset shifts that are needed. So when you're talking about this existing sense of complacency and this standardization and all the things that are contributing to educators leaving the profession, students not thriving in school, there's so much that we just need to completely change our minds around to be able to do better. And so I'm curious what mindset shifts are required to get people to buy into that dream of transformation you're talking about and maybe, you know, how adaptive leadership speaks to that. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it's interesting. I was introduced to adaptive leadership as a doctoral student, and I don't think I ever quite internalized it. And I couldn't believe, you know, there was a leadership framework that seemed to encompass every challenge I felt like I was encountering within this, you know, past year in particular. And so the idea behind adaptive leadership, you know, is not so much to create buy-in the way we think about it, right, through influence. It's a very collective process um, towards change and sense-making. And the mindset shift is, you know, I think of it as like a reality orientation. In business, you know, if I want to compete, I need to adapt to remain relevant. And that includes engaging in, you know, some people-centered practices. Um, but, you know, in education, we want to serve the needs of students, of teachers, our staff. Um, and so we need to develop everyone involved. So the first shift is really within yourself, right? And then acknowledging the value individuals bring. I think we too often just inadvertently silence voices at decision-making tables, and we hold that positional power in too high a regard. And adaptive leadership tells us to stop that practice, right? If you want to do better, if you want to do right by all. Um, so really it's, you know, engaging in a collective process of identifying value that others bring once you can understand that within yourself. And then two, I think it's the need to invite stakeholders across many different aisles to take part in the work 
once we can lay down our egos, our experience, our authority, anything that creates power and this distance of expertise, then we can have a real conversation about, you know, what truly are the challenges we're facing here and what sort of learning is required to even tackle these challenges. I think more often than not, we encounter adaptive challenges and don't even realize that, you know, these are challenges because we like autopilot want to apply solutions we have readily available in our tool belt, right? And so adaptive leadership tells us to stop that practice, right? Again, and so living in the tension, right? That is that unknown space where you don't have the answer, right? No one person has that answer. You know, you have to equal that playing field when it comes to enacting meaningful change. And that includes sharing space and power and decision-making. I see that so often when people ask the question of how do I make equitable policy? How do I make my school more equitable? And that's been the big push, I think this year more than previous years. And that's a component that's completely missing. I love that you started with buy-in because that's typically what leaders are asking about. They're asking, how do I get teachers, family members, students to buy into this idea that I have? Instead, you're saying it's a complete shift from that buy-in mentality to really thinking about that, that reality orientation, that shared leadership. I love what you're saying. And I, I just want to lift up a question that you, you asked in that. You said, what sort of learning is required? And I think that's huge. If we can shift from saying, how do I get people to buy in? Or how do I fix this problem to what do we all need to learn? And who can I learn from? Like, these are huge mindset shifts that can take us so far in creating equity in education. You're absolutely right, Lindsay. It's from what is the problem I've identified to what really is going on here, right? Underneath that, beyond my own perspective. Yes, exactly. What is really going on here? I love it. So as we think about how leaders can actually take these ideas and put them into action, I'm curious about, you know, some of the steps that they can take to make this stuff a reality for their schools. And so we talked a little bit about buy-in and kind of the shift away from buy-in, from overcoming this resistance that a lot of leaders kind of perceive from teachers and different stakeholders when they're trying to enact that, that larger initiative or that culture change. And so I'm curious to know about, you know, what would adaptive leadership or an adaptive leadership approach tell a leader to do in that case? Well, you, you and I as scholar practitioners or pracademics, you know, choose your moniker, um, know that we need the resistors, right? They're part of that formula for change. And I think we start with reframing, right? It's not the buy-in you need it's their value add we need. Um, we need to know or help them identify where it is they fit in within the initiative um, and where we fit in as well. Let's have some real adult conversations about the initiative, right? Whose is it to benefit from? Why is it important? How are we going to be affected as individuals? How are we gonna be affected collectively? How does it align with our mission and purpose as an education community, right? As a learning community. So I think, right, let's lay a foundation and find a role for everyone to play um, and really unpack as much as we can, starting small and gradually increasing that heat, right? The pressure cooker that adaptive leadership scholars refer to. Um, you have to start turning up the heat and uncovering those underlying issues that are at the core of the resistance and gridlock. And you don't see that enough 
right? You don't see it enough in decision-making processes. You don't see it enough in the information universe, you know, we prescribe to because it's time consuming for one, but it's uncomfortable, right? To live in that tension is not uh, a comfortable place for us. So we tend to avoid it. Absolutely. And we talk about this a lot when we're talking about racial or gender justice, linguistic justice, whatever we're talking about in the realm of justice and injustice, but it's also just more broad than that, right? It's every problem that comes to the table, every uncomfortable thing, every moment in that cultural setting of a a particular school building or district where you know tangibly the air is palpable with discomfort and something goes unsaid or something is not comfortable that is particular to that way that organization functions. And if we can't talk about it, we're never going to solve it. So that is huge. Right? It's the, it's the naming the elephant in the room. What is that elephant? Why, why are we so afraid of it? Exactly. Yes. What else can educators and school leaders learn from adaptive leadership scholarship that will help them as they kind of start having these conversations and naming these elephants? Yeah, so, you know, the research would tell us to identify our political landscape, right? Identify the key players, know their values, their loyalties, losses, um, you know, including yourself in that. Um, And, you know, really start with yourself and then be very clear about, you know, what do we all think are the challenges here, right? Likely it will take some facilitation, you know, or redirecting people from trying to apply, you know, what we call technical solutions. Um, things we already have in our tool belt ready to, you know, problem solve Um, and, you know, redirecting people from applying those solutions to problems that don't yet have a solution, right? We're here to identify a problem we do not know how to resolve yet. Like, why are my students not completing any work outside of the classroom, right? Spoiler alert, it's not because they're lazy, case closed. Um, So you really have to in research, we say, get yourself on the balcony, right? That perspective taking, get out of the weeds and take a greater perspective and keep asking questions, right? Start with a hypothesis and then you have to work through it, but you have to do that collectively where everyone gets input. And I think too, also the work of leaders, you know, is to mobilize and not resolve. And when I say leader, I'm not automatically referring to, you know, a building leader, a school principal, anyone can lead an initiative. And as well, adaptive leadership would tell us, if you have a problem, you are likely part of that problem. So include yourself and your opinions, your actions, you know, in that realm. And then, you know, reflecting in the midst of adaptive work, that's an age old idea, but yet individuals aren't truly doing it. You know, we're reflecting to look for reassurance when really we need to reflect to look for gaps in our knowledge. Um, You know, preconceived notions, values, put all those into question based on other people's inputs that we have at the table. And again, that is an uncomfortable space for us to exist in to do real work. Yes. And I'd love to speak about that for a minute, if you're okay with that. Just how do we switch? Like I think of women specifically, because my background is in women's studies and gender studies. And I think of the way that women are often conditioned in our society to be people pleasers, to seek reassurance, to, you know, care what people think. And I think this is a very universal, all genders encompassing thing, but particularly through that lens, I've seen it time and again, play out in in the scholarship and practice. And I'm curious to know, like, how do we undo that? Or how have you seen people be successful in making that leap from, you know, oh, I just, I want to get that reassurance. I want to get that validation that I am right. And I'm doing this thing right. 
and kind of lower that defensiveness, lower those kinds of mindsets and really increase that way of viewing things through an adaptive lens. Adaptive work is deeply relational work. And so a lot of times we're not willing to put in the time that's required, you know, to establish a sense of trust or establish that psychological safety that everyone has. I think we engage in work um, that is adaptive, again, from our own positionality. Do we have psychological safety? Are we assuming everyone else then also does? Um, does everyone feel as though they are in a space where they can voice their lived experience, their truth, their perspective? Perspective taking, but also the sharing in, um, you know, my truth is this, what is yours? But then listening not to respond, listening to understanding. And I think too, right up front, we need to establish that adaptive work is one, deeply collective. It's two, um, one with reduced power distance. It's an equal playing field, right? How do we get there? But I think two, three then, it is also a space that has to feel safe for everyone. And that is not determined by a person in an authoritative position. That's not determined by someone who is facilitating. That has to be something that everyone provides input in. And I think too, it's, you know, on a human level, it's connecting and understanding that if someone hasn't spoken up, have we provided that opportunity? Are we reflecting on how many voices we've heard and when we need to take a step back? And time is always the enemy. Time is always of the essence for this work. And um, I think too, the way we reorient how we think about time and you know, think about it instead, the progress that's being made. That is so profound because I think a lot of times we reduce our ability to take up work that is time consuming, that is long-term work, that is the mindset shift work, that is the adaptive work because we do say that we don't have enough time. And when I think about teachers and education, right, there's constantly a pressure to cover all this content, to attend all these meetings, to adapt to COVID, to all these things. And of course, if we look at it through that lens of like a super long to-do list, it never feels like we have enough time. But if we get on that balcony that you spoke about and we say, what is truly most important here? What do we really need to do to move the needle? not just a little bit, but a lot and whose voices are missing. And we prioritize that conversation and those answers above just checking the box of a long to-do list where some of those tasks might not actually move the needle at all and are really stuck in the old mindset. We totally redefine that idea of time. And we realize that sometimes we have to spend a ton of time on the thing that's going to get us the most success for our students and our colleagues. And I love that you just named that, that, that sometimes that can become an excuse, but, but it can't be. And I'd love too, that you were talking about, you know, everyone needs to be able to have a say in what opportunities they have, whether the space feels psychologically and physically safe. Dr. Sheree Bridges-Patrick and I have been doing a lot of work based on Stacey Haynes's book, talking about safety, belonging, and dignity in concert. So I know that you and I, Layla, have been talking about like, you know, safe space versus brave space and different conversations we've had. And that idea of safety, I think, as one that is making room for discomfort simultaneously with vulnerability. And so being able to like be safe and then also be uncomfortable and knowing you're still safe 
and yeah. knowing you can still be vulnerable. And I love yeah. that you're kind of naming that everyone has to be able to define what that is and when that is for them. Exactly. For themselves. They own that. As we think about, you know, moving to action and people are kind of wrapping up listening to this episode, what is one thing that you would encourage listeners to do once they take out their headphones, stop driving the car, whatever they're doing, and start really living in alignment with some of the things that we've been talking about today? Yeah, definitely. So I think it's always helpful to really name your own values, right? I think sometimes, you know, we we have values, obviously everyone does, but, you know, name them very clearly, be clear about what those are. And I think secondly, you can't ignore the politics. Um, Ignoring the politics involved in justice efforts or end goals you're seeking will only, you know, emulate the status quo. Those political alliances and factions, those need to be named as well. And also know that adaptive leadership is deeply relational, like we just mentioned. And that's why it's so important to identify those values, those loyalties, um, and what you stand to lose. Um, that sense of self-awareness is beyond you know, the preparation most people have when they embark upon adaptive work. And that may be why feeling like you've lost something you know, to change is so scary. Um, we don't mind change itself. We mourn what we may stand to lose in a change effort if that becomes a reality. And, you know, really that's often the comfort that we feel we're losing. And so, you know, to know that the work, you know, will be uncomfortable and to know that the only way to enact any real change is to get uncomfortable can sort of help, you know, get again in that mindset and, um, you know, part of that prep work for, for adaptive work. I love all the different pieces in there that are allusions to the adaptive leadership research. So I'm thinking resistance is loss, huge theme of adaptive leadership and a huge uh, game changer, I think, in how we consider resistance, right? And how we think about reshaping our minds in reference to that buy-in that you referred to as something that we need to kind of get away from that thinking if we think about people as grieving a loss, we have a very different reaction as leaders to support those folks than they are opposing me. They are barriers to our success, right? And so that's a huge mindset shift. I know you just quickly mentioned it, but I just wanted to see if there was anything else you wanted to to share about that. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Lindsay. You're you're pulling out, right? Again, this is this is the beauty of adaptive work. You're pulling out different bits and pieces that speak to you that then you can elaborate on. Um, I think too, right? It's always sort of this personal sense, right, of gain or loss. When you do embark upon, you know, following, say, a shared leadership model, it does become more about, you know, what benefits the initiative or what benefits the group, or really in this sense, you know what benefits students, right? The work is for students if the practice is truly student-centered. So I do think, um, you know, being able to, again, reflect upon that and name that, you know, am I having a personal reaction to this? Is this something that I need to then work through myself? Absolutely. Funny you mentioned things that stick out to me. One of my favorite pieces of adaptive leadership is this idea of identifying and rethinking, you know, the beliefs, the habits, the loyalties that we don't even sometimes realize that we have, but to be able to name those and say, wow, I have been loyal to, for example, this hat policy that I see every day harming students, um, getting them out of educational spaces, reducing the likelihood that they're going to graduate 
And for what, right? Like, let me interrogate that loyalty that I have to this policy. Like, where does that loyalty come from? Can I part with it? Is it okay to grieve that loss and replace it with something that is more justice-centered? And there's so much richness in adaptive leadership theory. I'm curious to know for people who want to learn more about this, is there a particular article, book, something of yours that is is your kind of favorite go-to for resources around adaptive leadership? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So currently I have a chapter in publication. Um, so I don't think that will be released until the fall. I will say too, for people that want to engage from a more practitioner standpoint, there is a four-week academy that Acumen puts on. It's through Acumen Academy and it is an adaptive leadership course. And it is meant to be engaged in um, in either a group or a team. So it is something you can go through with a group of people you work with, you know, this could be the kickstart to your adaptive work. Now, obviously it's, you know, condensed, but it does hit upon those large pieces of identifying what is adaptive versus technical, identifying your political landscape, identifying those values and losses, um, and then, you know, sort of engaging in a project. And, And that, I have gone through that with colleagues and I will say, it's deeply satisfying in terms of how much of the research you do see come to life in practice. Um, I think too, it is something that is written about quite frequently. I know, I mean, Harvard Business Review puts out so much about adaptive leadership in terms of, you know, reframing it in different contexts, you know, including different organizations, you know, like education communities. So I would say those would be good places to start. I mean, obviously the Heifetz books, theory-driven, but obviously have nice takeaways for practice as well. Great. Thank you for all of those resources. This is awesome. And I think you started to allude to something that you've been working on lately, but I'm curious to know, um, is there anything that you would like to share about the things you're working on learning? Um, Because as you said, you're a learner at heart. So anything that you would like to share with listeners around what that's been lately? I did mention I'm working on an ad- a chapter on adaptive leadership. Actually, believe it or not, I am working on a second one that you know something about. Um, and so I am also very interested in, so my research background is in global virtual teams and teaming across you know, barriers such as time and geography. But I'm very interested in the workplace beyond COVID and what that looks like reimagined, you know, given the great disruptor that is COVID and how human-centered those places of work will be. Um, But also I follow you, Lindsay, on social media, so I continue to learn from you um, daily. Thank you so much, Leila. I appreciate that. And I love, love this direction that you're thinking of in terms of adaptive leadership and the workplace beyond COVID. I think for schools particularly, There is so much potential and I know that it has been hard. I know that we've been adapting and that can feel really challenging, but there's so much potential to re-envision and dream up a beautiful system that is more inclusive and responsive and equitable and justice-centered than what we have traditionally had. And I'm so curious to see just the innovation that comes out of a disruptor like COVID as kind of a spark for educational justice and change. So I love that you're doing that. And I can't wait to follow all that you do with that. Finally, where can listeners learn more about you or connect with you, website, social media, any of that? I will say, I think this interview has been um, a really nice, a brief glimpse into those blurred lines between work and life, as you have had to um, interview, not just me, but hear from 
Skywalker, Ted, and Lulu upstairs. So I do appreciate the flexibility in that. But I am on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me. I'm Layla Bilal Maley on LinkedIn. And I post most speaking engagements um, or the work that I'm engaged in there. And I am also part of the Transform Ed Collaborative. And we do have a website. You can actually just Google Transform Ed Collaborative. Um, the website's transformedcollaborative.com. And we have a blog. And um, we continue to work on some small projects there. So you can find some work there as well. Excellent. And I, I want to add too, as another member of Transform Ed Collaborative, we are really excited to connect educators and also schools and school districts with educators um, and educational consultants who specialize in various practices. So if you're an educational consultant or a teacher who's kind of looking to grow that, please like let us know, email us and, and let us highlight your work. I will also say that Leila is amazing for the listeners listening on social media about just like supporting anything that you do. Layla is one of my biggest supporters and I just so thoroughly appreciate you, Layla. She is a person you will want to connect with for sure on LinkedIn. Layla, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely, Lindsay. I'm a supporter of yours because I am also a fan. So thank you. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Lyons or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.